short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this people I think is good people. They are they have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome to the Cold War episode 16. My name is Cameron Riley, and Ray will be joining us in a minute, as will our guest star, Dr. Peter Elliard from Melbourne in Australia. I uh, just wanted to do this quick introduction to Peter. Uh, been a long time friend of mine, uh, 15 or so years. I actually. Uh, played a very, very small role in the publication of one of his major books, Designing 2050, uh, about a decade ago. Uh, Peter is late 70s, I think now, uh, one of Australia's leading futurists and thinkers and public speakers, has had a long career as an executive, uh, innovator, inventor, uh, a career too long to even get started in uh Lovely fellow as well. Very, very bright. Very, very nice. Uh, good friend of mine and uh, Chrissy's. So um, I wanted to invite him on the show to talk a little bit about not necessarily the Cold War, though we touched on that in our interview, but about where we go from here. On a brief, on a recent show, I mentioned uh, the idea of planetism versus nationalism, and I got this idea of planetism, among other ideas I've got from Peter over the years. So I wanted him to come on and talk a little bit about that. But it was a fun chat, uh, lasts about an hour, and Ray and I barely get a word in edgeways, but that day, I warned Ray about that. I said, talking to Peter is like drinking from a fire hose, man, so you just hold on and try and keep up. So uh, keep that in mind. And we had a few Skype troubles, but I've tried to edit around that. Anyway, here it is, our interview with Dr. Peter Elliard. Peter Elliard, welcome to the Cold War Show. Thank you for asking me. I'm very <laughs> pleased to be, be, a, be a participant in your mega project. Oh, well, it's hardly that. Well, it's a little well. show, Peter, a little show. Now, um, now I'm talking about Peter, aspirations here. Oh, well, oh. you know, I'm, I'm very aspirational. <laughs> Um, and very perspirational, but that's another story. Peter, uh, kick it off by telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, and then we'll get into planetism. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Cam. I, I, I'm, um, I've been working as a futurist for quite a few years now, nearly 20, actually, 20, close to 25. <clears throat> and uh, before that, I was involved in environmental and planning-type matters, running organisations of one sort or another. So I've always been trying to make good things happen, I suppose. That's a bit very important. My, I understand what's happening and how to make things better, happen better. And over the time, I I used to, people tell me, well, why do you work in the future? You can't shape the future. That kind of comment came all the time. And I said, yes, we can. We can actually better. We've never actually sat down to develop what I call a bank of concepts and tools to shape the future. Well, over the last 25 years, I've actually think I've done that. And one of my big projects now having written about it in some of my books, is to um, uh, turn it into a pile of software so we could actually shape the future, which is what I, my big project over the next 18 months, two years, uh, for shaping the future. So I actually believe we actually can develop skills and capabilities to be a much more effective shapers of the future. Now, that's a fairly rarefied view of the world, but I hope to demonstrate that I can do that. And and some of these things, like ideas, like concepts, like planetism, are part of that story because we have to actually understand the nature of the world in which, in, in which we're moving, uh, moving into, as well as having the right skills and capability sets to uh, make a difference when we shape the future. 
Yeah, I, I like that idea of having the right tools to shape the future. You know, the the book that you wrote that I was uh, involved in in a small way, des- mm. Designing 2050, that we put out about, uh, I guess, 10 years ago. I like the idea of designing the future, mm. not just waiting for it to happen and, uh, mm. I don't know, uh, uh, take its own form. We have to think about what kind of world we want to live in and start to try and architect that, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Design, design is one of my six tools for shaping the future. The others are leadership, management, planning, design, innovation, and learning. And they all have their role. And uh, most people think about how it might be a planner or a designer or a leader or a manager. They think of these as simple, but actually all six of these are tools and capabilities we use to shape the future. So I work on them with them as a collective and see design is about form and function. Innovation is about doing new things first and old things better. I could go on and on about that. Leadership is about being a purposeful future maker and management is about becoming a resilient future taker and so on. So I have developed over time these tools. That, that's the part of the story of my future making and future taking world that I've tried to create as a toolkit to help people do all these things better. That's another one of your concepts that's had a big influence on me, the idea of a future maker. Why don't you talk about that, describe that a little bit for us? Yeah, well, um, it's interesting because we we are we tend to be, some people are, are seen to be very gifted as sort of going out and making things happen, and other people just waiting for things to happen and respond to them. And if we start thinking about what what tools we have to do that, I... I came down on the concept, first of all, of leadership and management, because if I say that my country, Australia, and many other countries too, are over-managed and under-led, most of people get a very clear idea about, well, that's true, but what's the difference between leadership and management? And I, when it all boils down, <clears throat> great uh, management perfection is about becoming a resilient future taker. And leadership perfection is about being a purposeful future maker. And uh, because basically uh, the other way of putting this is <coughs> George Bernard Shaw, famous quote from Back to Methuselah, which was misappropriated by Bobby Kennedy. But the original Shaw quote was that you see things and you say, why? I dream things that never were and I say, why not? That's the original Shaw quote. Well, that first one is basically the future resilient future taker, the manager part of us, and the second part is the purposeful future maker, the leader part of us. And we are all leaders of self and managers of self in our capabilities. And not just, we just don't have some leaders and some followers. We actually all have capacities to lead and manage. Whether we choose to grow these and use them and recognize them in ourselves ourself, is another matter altogether. Mm. So a future maker is somebody who tries to uh, lead themselves and others into a positive designed uh, future? Yes. Well, the, the other thing is when you look forward, the manager part of us is, is the prophecy person. They say, well, what's out there happening and what do I need to do not to get run over by the future or maybe a dollar, I make a dollar out of the future or those sorts of things. And it's basically responsive told. And the, on the other side is the, the uh, that's the profit part of us, the what will be person. The other part is the visionary, the what should or could be person, which is the leader part of us, okay? You know, basically, leaders go out and say, I dream of things that never were, and I say, why not? Or I, I, I have a vision about something, and I want to make it happen. So that's the visionary. So the, the manager part of us is the profit part of us and reacting, to, reacting to, to what's happening, and the leader part of us is the visionary and the maker of, what, maker of, of that, making the vision happen and turn it into reality. Ray, did you want to squeeze something out there, my buddy? Yeah, that that just reminded me. I saw the uh, the interview Cam did with you a couple of years, I guess a few years ago on YouTube, and you made the very valid point when JFK said uh, we're going to the moon. Uh, no one knew exactly how to do that, the actual components, the physical way to get to the moon. And so it's like all that needed to come after that. But first you have to declare yourself. You have to have someone inspire everyone who has these various skills to come together. And I think that's what we need today. And and I wonder, is that a political leader? Is that a, a, a big business person or a corporation? Or, or 
should everybody just be doing their part to to move us forward? Because I think you were making the point earlier, so many people are just used to sitting back and reacting and taking after something's been invented. We need everybody to be a lot more proactive to have a chance to you know, improve our society. Well, we all are capable of shaping the future. And the question is, see, the vision is the right brain part, part of us, right brain driven part of us, and the, the management is the left brain part of us. And we both have left brains and right brains, so whether we choose to engage them. But the John Kennedy example is a good one because that often happens in life. We're going to go and do something. And by God, how do we do that? Well, human ingenuity is awesome when it's given the task of saying, my God, I love the thought of going to the moon. How would we might get there? So the motivational efforts, uh, motivation goes, it rises dramatically and people find a way. <clears throat> it's like, I mean, humans are like that. I mean, if you, it's, I, I say if you fall in love with somebody, uh, you cross a, a sea of hot coals to, to get to the person you love. In other words, you actually make extraordinary efforts. Some of that is courageous type actions. Other of it is creating new schools of knowledge. How do I possibly get that girl? How do I get to the moon? And you invent the way. So that's the visionary part of us. That's the leader part of us is the craze, the vision, which is not... And visions inspire and motivate people. But gee, wow, that's a great idea. I'd love to, to be part of that, that kind of story. And well, leadership is about that and shaping the future that way and motivating other people to be. So we all can be leaders of actions and we can also be followers of action and collaborators in action. Uh, so it's not just that someone person leads and other people follow. Some people are very gifted at that. My aspiration is that everyone, everyone can be gifted at that. So this is a learning capability strategy and that's what my software is about. It's not just... Uh, except in a few people can make great visions and everyone else will follow like sheep and do it. It's actually to say that we all have the skills to be there. So I see people all at least leaders of self. And uh, and then if they can be leaders of others too. If you, but you can't be a good leader of others if you're not a good leader of self. Mm. So let's move on to planetism, <clears throat> yeah. Peter. Why don't you define planetism for us? Yeah, well, that's the other side of the story. Up until now, we've been talking a little bit about the tools we need to shape the future. <clears throat> the second thing is, is what are the mindsets we need uh, to understand the future into which we're going? In other words, what's happening out there and how can I be the wisest person to, to make, make a difference? I have to have some understanding of what's happening in the world out there. It's, not, it's a dynamic world. It's like being a, 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 you know, being a sailor and having your hand on the tiller. You have to do, understand where the wind is going and what the tides are doing if you want to get to where you want to go. And so basically understanding the world to an so so I said to myself, what um, what is really happening out there? And I started, this is a deep conversation I had with myself, which went over many years. But basically, we, uh, I it was summarized perfectly by when a prime minister of Australia, his name was John Howard, who, um, who said something once which actually stung me. He said, we're not going to sign the Kyoto Protocol because it's not in the national interest. But my immediate response to that was, yes, but it is in the planetary interest. So we have to make a decision. Is our primary allegiance to nation or planet? It's not the case that we just only think of as a nationalist. That moment for me was a very important moment which consolidated a lot of my work which had happened, recognising that we actually have to declare ourselves where our primary allegiance is. And right now you'll see, you'll see people who are in both categories. But over the time, there are more and more people every year becoming planetists and fewer and fewer nationalists. This doesn't mean you, you, you cease to be a nationalist. You become a different kind of nationalist. You say, well, America right or wrong. But no, America's not, America can, or the US can, be, uh, uh, can ha have its own interests. But to have, run its own self-interest over the top of every planet, of the interests of the, of the planet and the other people on the planet is ultimately going to be a self-defeating situation. So planetism is there. When I try this out on millennial-type people, kids, I give them these stories. I say, I explain my planetism, and 100% of the hands go up and support. I'm, I'm, I'm a planetist. They've never heard the word before, but they know this expresses their feelings about the world. Now, as it turns out, there are nine value shifts which occur when we're going from from the past, which is basically the modernist past, and I need to, I need to come back into that in a moment, into the planetist 
present and future because right now the sequence is modernism, postmodernism, planetism. So that's happening at the same time as we're switching from, from tribe to nation to planet. And there are tribalists around still. I mean, ISIL and, is, is a tribe, not a nation. They call themselves Islamic State, but they're actually a tribe. And uh, so tribalism is at least still around, but they're different. And we all know that tribalism is now an endangered to the planet. We all understand that. So we second, my God, these people who give right to, first right to nation or to tribe could be a threat to us. And if they refuse to recognize that and keep on doing it, they're going to disrupt our society terribly in all sorts of ways. Well, okay, let's go back now to the beginning of the 90s, and this, because I can bring in this into the Cold War story a bit now. Let's go back to the beginning of the 20th century. We were switching from the neoclassical, well, first of all, the, uh, the, the neoclassical 18th century into the birth of the modernity in the 21st, in the, 19th, in the 20th century. And then, uh, well, late 19th century, we switched basically from a classical a romantic past into a modern world. Modernism was first used and became expression in the early 20th century, but it was actually happening a bit earlier than that. Can you explain modernism yes, for everyone? Modernism basically, modernism basically is if everything new is good and everything old is bad. For example, modernity means if we had a a la mode and uh, words like that, things that go out of fashion. Up until that time, we changed as the world changed. We we declared things out of fashion, and uh, and said, well, they are old. So it was a disrespect for the old and 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 the, uh, a, dis a huge disrespect for the old. Unlike the classical, which respected the old, modernity said, we're going to sweep away the old and replace it with the new. And we instituted a concept called progress. Progress is a very big word. Around the world, we had people who believed totally in progress. The word became a kind of cult word. In places like Australia, we had these things called progress associations. Everyone had one because they somehow meant being modern. Being modern, modern meant we have to change things and, and re replace old and antiquated ideas with new ideas and new concepts. And we swept away babies with bathwater all the time because as modernism progressed, we made a mess of the environment. We treated um, indigenous people around the world because they weren't modern enough. And we said, we have to assimilate you into our ways of thinking. We didn't respect their difference and let them live and maybe learn from them. We didn't have that respect for the old and the different. Modernism basically means disrespect for the old and the different, and we need to just replace it with kind of uh, progress. And I could go into great more details, but basically modernity meant that. So what happened was that it happened right about in 1968, something big happened. That was the Apollo mission. We saw the first pictures of the Earth from space. This was an awesome moment in the history of humanity because it, uh, we saw that we were condemned to live on a vulnerable planet, whether we liked it or not. Coming back to modernism before we go on to that day, because uh, in the Cold War, for example, the, all three sides, the fascists, the communists and the, and the democrats, if you look at the democratic parts of the, of the society, all were modernists. But what they disagreed with was the part how we became modern. So ideology was not about... We all had shared modern ends, but ideologies which dominated the Cold War were really about how do we become modern? And we, some people believed in the dictatorship of the, of the proletariat. Some of them had elitist or autocratic ways, and other people had modern ways. Now, the end of the Cold War, the, the end of the Second World War removed fascism from the world functionally for a while at least. And so the struggle between these three sides became a struggle between two. So the communists and the, quote, capitalists, slash Democrats, or mostly capitalists, uh, decided they needed to fight a stoush that went on for, again for a while. So I actually see the Cold War as part of, of what, how we become modern. But as we got to the Apollo 8 story... It didn't matter because modernity was now being itself was being questioned as a destination, and we said progress is ain't good, and it was telegraphed beautifully by Jodie Mitchell in her song Big Yellow Taxi when she talked about paving paradise and putting up a parking lot. I remember that when I first asked you to explain modernity to me many years ago, that was 
the one thing that you said that really connected. You said big yellow taxi. And I went, oh, right, we paved paradise and put up a parking lot. I get it. Yeah, and, and, and you see, is that really interesting? Because then we changed our words. Uh, as we confronted the reality of the downside of modernity, and what we call slums became heritage precincts, okay? And what we call swamps became wetlands. <laughs> as we changed how we looked at these things. I mean, yeah. you, you know, we don't have swamps anymore. We all have wetlands. And wetlands are things you save and nurture. Swamps are things you drain. <laughs> and 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 mm-hmm. and slums are things you remove and get rid of. Okay. And mm-hmm. heritage precincts, the same buildings in in inner cities all over the world, are things you protect and nurture. So in postmodernity times, we actually can have the best of the both of the old. So, for example, you go to a place like Augsburg, which is the headquarters of Siemens in Germany. It's a functionally neoclassic uh, city with modern electronic in it. So what we did, rather than replace things, the old with the new, and often which were worse, we had the best of the both, best of the, best of both. So postmodernity means the combination of the best of the old and the best of the new in a new way. And I'll illustrate that with another way about when you go to your doctor and the doctor says to you, this is, a, this is what your rot got wrong. Go to the chemist or the pharmacist and get this script filled and you'll be fine. Take the pills and you'll be fine. But she said, well, I'll do that. But I just might check out what the acupuncturist can do or the Chai Chi can help me do or the Shiatsu person can teach me to do. We understand that all these healing arts and sciences, the ancient healing arts and sciences, yoga and so on, can also help. So one of the things that's happened in postmodernity is this huge increase of the old ways of healing. And what happens is the doctor might say, oh, that's all quackery. Please just take your pills and forget that. You say, well, he's the unreconstructed modernist, and you're the postmodern person saying, well, I'm going to have the best of the old and the best of the new. I'm going to take the pills, but I'm also going to go and enroll in a yoga class and do both. Okay? So that's a very important switch. And that, and that was a halfway house on the way to planetism because once we started to look at that, that all reinforced itself post the Apollo mission because we said, well, look, this beautiful, delicate blue and white thing, we have to look after. And what's more, even more important, is that we have to learn to get along with this. We can't afford to destroy this planet anymore in wars. And we, we see we're still doing some of that when we look at the Aleppo's of the world right now. But the important thing about what what we feel when we see Aleppo being destroyed by war is we all have a shared horror. Most people in the world do, and particularly the educated middle class, because globalization is increasing the size of the middle class, the educated middle class, which will be 5 billion by 2030. Now, educated middle class people think pretty much the same way as we do. They're basically planetists, and they might have a few modernist twists in them in different, different cultures, but basically they say, we are living on this planet of ours in the 21st century with all the new technology linking us and the, sh- the shared idea that we have a planet that we can actually treasure and protect. It's our only home. We have to build it and make it find ways how we can all thrive together on it. And that is basically the essence of planetism. What are the rules? To do that, well, I actually came up with the values of planetism by asking myself that question. I said, basically, if I were the captain of a spaceship and I was on a ten-year journey to a distant planet, and on that planet, on that spaceship, I had a bi-gender and multicultural crew, what are the rules I would need to do to make sure we didn't fight out and destroy the spaceship on the way? And what are the value shifts and the virtues we're going to have to live by to do that? So we might have values, but what are the virtues we have to live by while we're doing that? And I started to say, I came up with a list, and then I started trying that in the marketplace. I found that they were all growing. So I said, this is, this is actually happening because we're, the emerging values we are developing now, uh, we can go into the nine of them, uh, are the ones we need to thrive on our spaceship Earth, which is the name that Buckminster Fuller and Kenneth Boulding gave, that, gave to our planet in the late 1960s. They were very prophetic people. Kenneth Boulding wrote a very famous essay called Opera, uh, calling uh, uh, space... Uh, no, what's the... I've forgotten the name of it now, but it's about... He created the concept of a spaceship... The, you know, the economics of the coming spaceship Earth, that's what it was. And Bucky Fuller wrote a book called Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth. 
Tell people your Bucky Fuller story. You uh, didn't you catch him up in uh, Cornell or somewhere like that? Yeah, that's right. I actually ran it. Yes, he did. He gave a talk there. I was t- the two people I most were most influential in my life were Buckminster Fuller and Joseph Campbell, and both of those I was lucky to hear and gave talks at Cornell. And I ran into Buckminster, Buckminster Fuller in nineteen. Uh, 68 too in at, at the when he had the geodesic dome at the Montre- Montreal World Expo. So um, yeah, and they were they were the two most influential people in my life. So I, I've learned a lot from both of those people. Uh, extraordinary people, both of them, in the, each in their own way. And my two great teachers in terms of my journey as an evolving futurist. Mm. Two of the two of the greatest minds of the 20th century. I agree with you. From well, yeah, completely different perspectives, but uh, they were big influences on me as well. Hey, I just wanted to give Ray an opportunity to ask a question. You've you've been talking like a fire hose at us for fifteen minutes, Peter, <laughs> and I'm sure I'm sure Ray's head is spinning. Ray, do you have anything uh, you want to ask? Yeah, I just wanted to uh, run something by you. <clears throat> I think the great irony of technology is that the world is a smaller place. But at the same time, you watch um, eight-year-olds, twelve-year-olds, fourteen-year-olds. They're on their they're on their phone or device all the time, and the I don't know. To me, it seems the idea that the only thing that really matters, or the only thing that exists for them, is whatever part of the world they're in now. Even though they can go to YouTube and see uh, Africa, Asia, they can, or whatever Mount Everest, they can go anywhere on this planet. You know, because so, someone is filmed it with a camera or a drone or whatever. And the idea of teaching young people, like you said earlier, this planet is all we have. Forget all the sci-fi shows you see. There's, we're not going to be able to build a big, massive ship and everybody get on it. We're going to go to a new planet once we destroy this one. This is it for the vast majority of us, certainly for the people that are alive now. What, you know, what can the average person do to start making a difference to, to preserve this one uh, spaceship that we have all of that's true and and the rec- the mutual recognition which is generated by that one photograph which led on to this huge sea change because because what was happening also as globalization was making us richer and and more interconnected over the over the planet was that more people were going to university more people were being educated and now most people are going to finish primary and secondary school in our planet now. The number who doesn't, don't even finish secondary school is quite small. The number of people going to university say, so what's happening? The quantity of education we're getting and the quality of education and the length of it are all changing. And as we learn more about those things, you know, we, we go, you know, it's like Maslow's hierarchy. We, we get away from self-survival and we, get, we start thinking about the survival of the planet and how, do we going to, how are we going to collaborate on this planet? Now, we are learning this in, in a hard and difficult road ahead, which humanity is going on now. My view is by 2050, the job will be largely done. Now, we can argue about whether that's the right time, but that's my judgment. I can justify that. We will all basically will find a way to coexist on this planet by 2050. And we're, we're making mistakes. Now, we need to collaborate to take out the nasty people who are destroying us. We also need to build. So the whole issue around getting... Uh, uh, agreement on trade. Now, that's a huge issue in the US ca- campaign right now because there's a negative, mm-hmm. and Brexit's another example of people reacting to globalization and trade. Even though m- the most thoughtful people say we need it more because to grow, there are people being hurt by it. So, what we need to do is what I call a less exploitive form of globalization. And we go from what I call cowboy to, to um, cosmonaut globalization. Cowboy globalization is a modernist globalization, which was globalization, which largely involved exploitation of one sort or another and using people and degrading people for the advantage of others. So basically it's about that is a bigger issue in my books. I cover it at great length. But what I call cosmonaut globalization is actually a return to the globalization that occurred before 1492 when globalization was run by the Chinese and people collaborated and it wasn't about hegemony of one tribe over another. It was about collaborating, selling goods and services. And that led, for example, to the entire Silk Road and the whole nature of of the places like Toledo in Spain where Jews, Muslims and Christians lived happily for centuries until Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand decided to change that. And 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 they together brought the great... Uh, Instruments of civilization like the plow from China, I could go at length about that. Because globalization existed for a long time. But in 1492, 
when the two things happened, Columbus got to uh, to the Western Hemisphere, and the Spanish Inquisition was born. Well, and I think it all both in the same year. So, so when the Spaniards got to, to South America, they didn't actually form to collaborate with Aztecs. They just murdered them, murdered them, and stole their gold, which was essentially a fairly new phenomenon. It was much. It was exploitative and dangerous up until that time. When people went to other countries, they went in peace and trade in trade missions, and the Silk Road is a classic example of that, and uh, where people understood mutual benefit. Now, what's actually happened since then, after the, with the death of modernity and at the end of the Cold War and the, begin, the, the beginning of the birth of Platonism in the, in the 1970s, and that has stopped us in our tracks, and we now say, my God, we have to globalise in a way which is mutually beneficial, which is interdependent. Because the old modernisation, we used to have things called dependencies. We actually create, consciously created and conquered and created dependencies. All the empires had dependencies. So you think about human nature, human relationship, we have a dependent relationship, we have the independent relationship and the interdependent relationship. The 21st century is about the dominance of the interdependent relationship, which has, at its core, this is part of Platonism, three rules. The golden rule, do others to others as you would have them do, do unto you. Two, mutual obligations for success and accepting win-win outcomes only, not win-lose. They are big issues. So basically, when we have a, a, an agreement, for example, in the Paris COP21, which is the big meeting we had last year on climate change or earlier this year, we actually need uh, have win-win because if we have win-lose, no one's going to sign up. <laughs> so, coming back to what the birth of Platonism means, those three things, and interdependence and democracy are, are some of the values which are emerging in the planet's world. We are now interdependent, and uh, one of the reasons I actually read this in the in the world, particularly in the Western world, women are starting to do a lot better than men. Because they actually do interdependence better than men. But only educated men have to learn how to become interdependent. They are still believing independence and often individualism too. The old, the old par paradigm was about individualism, independence and autocracy, and humanity against nature. The new planetism is about communitarianism. Uh, communitarianism, if rights between individual and, individualism versus communitarianism is a, is a key one because... What, what's, what's that word, Peter? Com communitarianism. communitarianism. If human rights are in conflict, individualism says individual rights win. So that's the, the right to own guns in, in America. But a lot of people in America are communitarians. They say communities must win. They're the people who say we shouldn't actually take guns out of our society. So... The battle over guns in, uh, in America is between the individualists who believe I have a right to wear a gun because the Constitution gave me that right and I'm going to do it anyway. And Communism says we can't afford to. And in, in America, look at America, it's really interesting because the right to smoke in public has been taken away from individual smokers and right. uh, because we need a right to have clean air, right? So that's a communitarian perspective. So America has a duality of a schism between it because when they look at human... They look at smoking in public, they've rejected individualism and accepted communitarianism. But in, in the right to own guns, they've accepted individualism and turned their back on communitarianism. Because it was in the Constitution, and there are some people whose vested interest is in uh, keeping guns because uh, the Second Amendment of the US Constitution gave them the right to that, and they want to ent entertain. Sooner or later, we will repeal the Second Amendment. Now, it's, people don't dare that politically yet. But with another 10 years, I will predict, as a futurist, the Second Amendment will be abolished. Okay? <laughs> wow. All right. Um, let's let's uh, not put any money on that right now. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the planetism uh, from a Cold War perspective as well. I know that in studying for this show over the last six months, I've read a lot about uh, when, uh, after the U.S. Uh, dropped the nuclear weapons on Japan and uh, Russia finally developed their own nuclear weapons four or five years later. There was this recognition on behalf of the leaders of both uh, the USSR and the USA that they couldn't actually use these nuclear weapons. 
because of mutually assured destruction and the realization that to get back to von Clausewitz, uh, war is an extension of politics by other means, that if you launched a war that resulted in the planet being destroyed, there was actually no point in fighting that war in the first place. That's right. So so you had a Cold War, you had a Cold War instead. <laughs> Which yeah, didn't, but didn't to, threaten to me... The planet. The, <laughs> To me, that's a sort of a, a recognition of globalization in the early fifties. There, that well, it is you know, if if we destroy the globe, then uh, no one wins. So let's let's not <laughs> let's try and avoid dropping those bombs in the first place. Well, that's actually um, see that was dominated by a, a mutual fear agenda. Now, globalization now and the birth of planetism and the developing of trade partnerships is a hope-driven agenda. Quite a shift, right? I, I you know, I. I want you to talk a little bit about that because I'm uh, a little bit more sceptical about globalization than you are, but I think that's because I see it happening in a cowboy model uh, as opposed to a cosmic model. And it's model happening in quite a few model. places in a cowboy model, but it's also happening in a cosmonaut model too. Both are pre- Can you give us some examples of cosmonaut uh, models in practice that you've that you've seen? Well, trade, international trade agreements, they're imperfect. They have a bit of both. For example, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a big one right now, is it's a noble and grand idea. It's about all wow. of us trading together. At, okay, now it's, look. Let's go back a bit further. Let's go back to the birth of the European Community. It's an even better place to start. Yeah. The okay. Treaty of Rome basically made it very clear that the reason the Germans and the French got together to create the European Community and it was them who did it, basically, is that they wanted to get became so much interdependence between their economies that they couldn't afford to go to war together. They already had three in the last century. They said, we have yeah. to be owned so much of each other's economies and become so close that it's like brother and sister killing each other won't happen or it's less likely to happen. So the European community was born out of the Second World War and uh, because people said, we have to find a way so we're going to have another, yet another destructive war between France and Germany. And the Treaty of Rome made it very clear in its opening standards that that's the purpose of the European Union. It became an economic one, but it was all about peace building originally. Mm. Okay? Mm. Now, we'll just go on to the the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's more of the same. Now, what tends to happen, though, is there's always self-interest and uh, this is the individualism versus the communitarianism again in in action. the communitarians say we need to go these courageous steps together and sacrifice each so each so we can have win-win outcomes. Others saying it's we're too much win-lose now, and the workers of America, for example, are losing. Therefore, we'll oppose the lot. We'll throw out the baby with the bathwater. That's a current situation in the negotiations. So we're halfway there to the plan of the future, but we've got a work to do. And that work will continue on. I actually think we'll have all these things in place by 2050. That's my reading of the situation. But that's what I mean there's not a lot of pain. And what we have to do now in, say, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and all the other trade agreements, which are all over the planet, we all want them, providing we, because we think they're in our interest to do so. But we have to give up something to get something. It's, you know, interdependence by nature is some of us releasing, uh, cutting back on our independence, reducing our independence, because of the benefit that comes from union. That's a marriage. That's an independent relationship. That's a marriage. But it's also the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's, it's, we actually, it's about those three things. The golden rule, mutual obligations, and finding win-win outcomes. That's what the Trans-Pacific Partnership is all about. That's what globalization is all about. These are very big issues. The story is half written. The narrative rolls on. As a futurist, I say the narrative will end, this part of the narrative will end around 2050 when all these places will be in place. It doesn't mean there won't be pain on the way and the Brexit backlashes on the way. But Brexit's a classic example of that because just think about, Sid, no one expected the the Brexit people to win, Uh, but they, they managed it so badly that they lost. But everyone now says, can we actually... This is disastrous for England. Of course, it's disastrous for England. First of all, Scotland will say, well, I want to be part of Europe. They will secede. And Northern Ireland will decide they want to get become part of Ireland so they can stay in Europe, which that's extraordinary that they're even talking that talk, given the fact that how the Protestants and the Catholics have fought so much for the last hundred, several hundred years. Suddenly they say, well, maybe the, the island has to get together again so we can be both part of Europe. 
the power of the of the power of the desire to be part of the European collective in Northern Ireland is huge. And, just, and, the, and so, so poor little England and Wales will be left alone. London is communitarian. It's planetist. The whole of the city of London, the, 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 the poor work, working poor of England are basically voted for Brexit and they're mostly in Northern England. And these stories are being unfolding right here now this year in many parts of the world. Humanity is being extremely courageous. It's actually inventing this despite the incredible difficulty of this and the backflips and the Brexit votes. But the story is unstoppable. It's grinding on because the size of the educated middle class on this planet of ours is growing by the population of New York City every three months. It might slow down a little bit because the economies have slowed down, but it's still very substantial. Wow. That's a Can you explain the importance of that? Well, because the yes, rise of the global middle class. Educated middle class people think the same, have the same values. Basically, they believe in interdependence. They believe in democracy. They believe in gender equality. They believe in cultural harmony. And I could go on a great length. They believe in resolving conflicts through cooperation, negotiation, rather than combat. They believe in the difference between security and defence. Defence is based on the, the old cowboy modernist view was we had defence departments. That, that meant the enemy was out there and we had to arm ourselves to keep them out there and not come in inside our own tent. We now not have a defence problem, we have a security problem. The, the enemies might, are in our cities. They're hacking our, uh, hacking our computers, they're selling drugs to our kids and all sorts of other things they're doing. So we have a security problem, and I spent a lot of time, and I have worked with the Defence Department, says defence is now an archaic, modernist idea. The issue is now security. We have to keep the, deal with the security issues. And we have a single planet now, and it's insecure and secure, and we have to find ways to invent the security. That's a separate, another part of my work about ways and ways and new innovations. So basically... Okay. All of that stuff means that the values of the educated middle class are really very similar. A middle class Argentinian and a middle class Chinese, educated middle class Chinese and middle class American educated will all think basically the same values. And they are essentially planetist values. And as the site, they essentially planetist values and they are the ones which we need to thrive on spaceship Earth in the 21st century and beyond. And you want to run through those just to finish up? Yeah. What those values are? Well, the old value was individualism, but the new one is communitarianism. First, if human rights are in conflict, we have to give rights to community over, over, over individuals. And I gave the example of gun ownership and smoking in public. The second one is from independence, believing in strong independence, to interdependence. Okay, that means giving up some of our independence because of the benefit that comes from union. That's, that's the whole of the European community. That's all the globalised, all the trade agreements. That's our relationships in the United Nations. We actually have to solve these problems together because we're interdependent. The third one is from democ- autocracy to democracy. <clears throat> At the end of the Second World War, there were just 12 democracies on the planet. There's now 135. Some of them are not so perfect, but they all know that democracy is the official official way to be a good autocrat now in the world means you, you're going to have you become an, a planetary pariah very quickly the next one is humanity against nature the old modernist view we had to fight nature in drain swamps we're now part of nature so we call them wetlands and protect them the next one is development production and and lifestyles sustainable as it's unsustainable this is a big one what do we mean by sustainability? This is a genuinely new 21st, 20th, late 20th century idea. And sustainability means doing things with zero net collateral damage to other. That comes out of defence backgrounds. We actually, you see, we're having smart bombs. We, we can actually make a mess of things. We are like sort of that in Aleppo. But in other places, we're actually taking out the bad guy without leaving the rest or harming the rest. That's the smart drone, smart warfare. And basically, that's a, can you believe that's sustainable warfare? <laughs> Sustainability means no collateral damage, no net collateral damage. And so when we do things, we don't bugger up the planet and we don't bugger up the species on the planet. We actually protect them so we get the outcome without the downside. And that's also sustainable medicine. The next big one is from patriarchy, men in charge to gender equality. Very big. But women are doing everywhere. Now, 
the patriarchs of the world are still around, but they're getting very bad global pressure and they're also increasing global pariahs. The fact is, the pariahood is going to those people in the planet who are holding on to the old values. Inter, interreligious and intercultural conflict and combat, the old style. The intercultural and interreligious tolerance and harmony. How do we create harmonious? That's a very big issue, and we're trying to do that every day. And there are new interventions. Well, I actually think that peace building in the 21st century of huge proportions, okay? I could go into that length. Then we have conflict resolution. We used to resolve them through confrontation and combat, and now we have to resolve them through cooperation and negotiation. Even when we have a war now, they often usually don't go to their bitter end to the last man standing. They force us in, the world forces these people in, into a negotiation and collaboration. So basically, increasingly, we're solving our conflicts through cooperation, negotiation. We're learning to do that. Our economies are inventing new ways and wares, new innovations to do that. And the last one is safekeeping through defence, the safekeeping through security, which I've already explained. So there are nine value shifts there. It's in my books and so on, and uh, it's in, in my new software, which I'm writing now. That is the very big shift. All those values with the planet of the values are here in present and growing, and they are the values held dearly by the educated middle class. And as education grows and as, as become, where people become wealthier and get, and get away from the Maslow because of the increased prosperity from globalization, these things are growing in spades. Wow. You are the ultimate optimist, yeah. Peter. Um, tell, I, I, I just... Well, I, 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 I see the world. Uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but but, but I, I can, I'm producing evidence. I've given you evidence through this. I, I have, you know, when I wrote my big book of 500 pages that you helped me with, Sam, yeah. I, 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 I had to write a book that big because I had to give the evidence, and that's books in that evidence. My last book is only 200 pages because I said, well, I've explained it all there. I don't need to say it here, but I could add value to it. So, um, you know, I actually understand I have to make the case for what I'm doing, but I think I can make it. And, I may, and I've just given you examples today, like gun ownership and, mm. and, and smoking in public and the, comp, the, comp, the difference, this crazy difference between the yeah. two. The Americans can't get their act together on both, but they know they should. Explain the popularity of Donald Trump, Peter. He's a Brexit example. He's saying he comes back to the the, the, the America is, is hurting very badly from some of the issues of globalization because but you see you have this thing you have America's innovation is driving the system the entire cyber cyber world is being invented in America largely still to name one example a whole lots of new industries are being born every day there whole new products and services now, on the other side is we have the old industrial past the mass production are all dying the Detroit's of the world which have had in crisis because basically now the, the people, the, the car workers in Detroit who are being put out of jobs by, by Toyota making cars better than they them are angry. And they say, well, that's the point. And of course, the other thing about America is that the, the unionism has died back hugely. And mm -hmm. unlike in Australia, for example, where unionism is still pretty strong and the minimum, the fall of, of the, the lot of the disadvantaged workers is, is less much better than it is in America because we are, uh, there's a, a movement called unionist, trade unionism which helps protect the people who are losing in the short term from not getting the win-win. So the win-win we need to, to create this world and if they're win-lose we get the Brexit's of the world and we get the Donald Trump's of the world and we have some of that but yet on the side there's a lot of win-win going on but just not enough of it. So if yeah. America is the um, one of the anyway longest-running experiments in democracy and capitalism on the planet, and it gives us Donald Trump as a potential uh, president, it's it's a, not a great uh, example of the benefits of democracy and capitalism for the rest of the world. I oh, know. I think I actually welcome it because it actually helps it. We, we, you know, we have Pauline Hanson in Australia, and we have Jean Marie Lab. Uh, the pen in France. These people, you know, they, these are the people who are losing out in globalization. And they have it, and they're angry, very angry. But the issue is, America is, there's not enough of them to elect a lot of Donald Trump. There's probably 30% of the population. The other rest of them are too educated and too well off to vote. I mean, the in interesting thing that's happening in the Republican Party right now is the rich 
Republicans are all going to, none of them supporting Trump. They are, the, there's a whole new definition of the Republican Party has been taken over by, uh, by some extremist people who are angry mm-hmm. at things, but a whole lot of the Republicans who, under, who are fundamentally Republican planetists say... Peter, Peter, we're having problems with your uh, telephone slash Skype connection again, so we might uh, might need to leave it there, my friend. Um, thank you for coming in and, and, and uh, explaining all of those concepts to us over the last hour or so. People who want to uh, keep up to date or get copies of your books are designing2050.com, uh, peterelliard.com. They go to amazon.com and get, get both the Designing 2050, which is the big book, and the, the more recent Destination 2050, which is a smaller book. And you can get them there from amazon.com as both as an e-book and as a hard copy. Excellent. Thank you again, Thank Peter. You, sir. Uh, have a good day, mate. You too, my friend. So we've let we've let Peter go. Uh, unfortunately, the his telephone line uh, connection wasn't great, but uh, so the last few minutes of it there were a bit uh, difficult. But uh, what did you what did you take away from all of that? I told you it was like it was like drinking from a fire hose, didn't I? Talking to Peter. Yeah, no, but I was going through some of his uh, so, some of his five hundred page book, and um, yeah, he like you said, he is the most optimistic person. Uh, wow, uh, but but he does make some good points, and in just in our interview with him, he had some uh, he had some real gems that just really make you make you stop and think. I would like to throw out a couple of observations. One, I'm glad that smoking wasn't in the U.S. Constitution; people would be fighting for it still, and we'd be fighting all over the place. And two, I wonder if uh, the people of Great Britain could vote again right now with everything they've heard. I wonder how that vote would turn out if they could have a second chance at it. Yeah, actually, when I was speaking to Peter yesterday, uh, he said he he suspects that the UK is going to find a way of staying in the uh, EU. That he's, he's not they're sure better. how, but they're going to try. <laughs> I think yeah. they, he said they're going to try and find a way of uh, voiding the uh, referendum that they had, but remains to be seen. Well, look, you know, I I. I I think that was a great chat, um, and I hope people got some interesting ideas out of that. Do go and grab a copy of his main book, Destination 2050. Uh, it is, even though it's sort of 10 years old now, it's still a, a terrific read. Um, very easy to read, too, um, and I'm not only saying that because I published it. Uh, it is, uh, right. It's a, it's a, one of the most mind-expanding books you'll probably uh, oh, ever read. yeah. I was I was enjoying what I read and it did make me um, have hope and, and taking two points of his and putting them together. One, if if the educated middle class around the globe has generally the same value system and those numbers are growing at the rate he said they were, I mean that's that's a lot of good that's a lot of good hope for the planet. And he's right about Trump. I mean I I've, I've been reading the news and watching the news whatever about Trump every single day. And his numbers are his numbers are crashing, and he's crashing. And there are enough people. That even though he was this guy who was saying, "Hey, I'm I'm going to tell you the truth, and I and I'm the guy who's going to look after you, even though I'm a billionaire. I'm going to look after the common people." But it, fortunately, the American election electoral process is so long. I think so many people have woken up to him that he is going to lose. Not that I'm excited about Hillary, but he will lose the election, and he'll say that it was rigged or whatever. But we will have dodged this bullet. Yes, it's embarrassing for America, um, and and I'm not. And if you like Trump out there, I'm just saying that he's not qualified because he's never been in government before. Don't, I'm not. It's not personal. He's just not the right person to do this. But uh, we will dodge this bullet, and we'll just have to be embarrassed every time you know we're traveling into another country and someone says hey you know trump we're gonna have to go yeah yeah but our bad but what comes next man like mm. I well, the republicans the, the republicans are gonna have to reinvent themselves to some degree who knows who knows I, you know i thought that after john mccain ended up with uh palin I thought Palin was as embarrassing as you could get. No, she was no. only a Veep candidate. She was the first act, and now it's gone from bad to worse to worse yeah. to Trump. What comes next? Seriously, yeah. Clint Eastwood, oh, yeah. like Scott Bayo. Oh my God, uh, I love Clint Eastwood, the actor. Clint Eastwood, the politician, the director, the great director, philosopher, too. and director. Yeah. yeah, but oh my God, this. I mean, he's he's right. You can't like, and you've said this a billion times on our different shows. You can't just say. 
you have A and B, and B is always right, and A is always wrong. That is not how life works. So when Clint, someone like Clint Eastwood says, we got to quit being such pansies, we got to quit being such so overly sensitive, whatever. I mean, to a degree, he's right. We have to learn to let someone say something, and it's not the end of the world, or you don't have to pull out a gun and shoot someone or whatever. I mean, we, we, need, to, we need to be a little tougher America because of our affluence and our technology, whatever we've, we've, you know, we've gotten pretty soft and, but, but it's, but he's just way, way too far over there. And it's just upsetting a lot of people who want to live right in the middle, who want to be decent to other people and be treated decently and just live and let live. And the Republicans, some of the Republicans are not about that at all. All right. Well, that's the show, folks. Um, we've got to go oh, I, because we've just, got... Just real quick. I'm sorry. I, if you want to end this on a light note, and I apologize for cutting you off. Uh, when he got to the part about medicine, about just taking a pill versus the old ways, did, and I'll make this really quick, um, and you can edit it out if you want. Did I ever tell you how Heather got pregnant the first time? <laughs> yeah, it was uh, the big black guy uh, down the road wasn't it one of your neighbors no, that was something on the side no I'm, no this is serious no we we tried for two and a half years to have a child but she couldn't wasn't happening she couldn't find your dick she couldn't we both looked anyway uh we just couldn't try it. and it was really you know and you probably heard about this uh, from other couples it it was almost about to ruin our marriage i she mean kept it was saying that bad she kept saying is it in yet is it in? I think it's in. Is it in? I think. Oh, and I'm sorry. like, how sorry. am I supposed to? I'm all the way up here. No, but uh, she did acupuncture. Yeah. And uh, not out. quite four yet, four weeks after she started, she was pregnant. Um, I'm not even out. sure I'm the father. There's some needle out there right now that has a <laughs> yeah, child. The acupuncturist, you know. <laughs> on the other hand. Uh, when she said, did you actually moment. see her get, did she just go, yeah, I'm going to go see this no, guy. He's going, to, he's going to go stick something in me. And you went, sure. I should have right. asked for more details. No, no, I was there the whole time because the other part was I had to, in the God, make her tummy warm. Is this Kiki? So I had to, this is Kiki, right? <laughs> this is Kiki. Yes, yeah, yes. No. So I, the, I always want. I didn't think Kiki was yours, yeah. man. Like she's no, no, she's, she's not. She's gorgeous. She's funny. She, she's yeah. talented. She got I keep thinking she can't. No, be I had your. to heat up her. I had to take this burning coal thing and hold it really close to her tummy and heat. Anyway, so wow. but they also stuck a needle in her in Heather's foot in the happy baby spot. Which I thought would have been in between the legs, but anyway. Um, so, so she turned out to. And you've you've met Kiki. She is a cheerful, delightful child. So, oh, go great. acupuncture. People should give it a try. <laughs> I did. I was trying to interrupt Peter when he was talking about uh, the medicine stuff because I know that Peter has done yoga. Uh, some mm-hmm. other stuff about Peter we didn't get into, but he had he was an identical twin. His identical twin brother oh. uh, passed away many years ago. Uh, and Peter's been devoted to yoga, I think, ever since. But Peter had like he was like a CEO of various sort of government NGOs and that sort yeah. of thing. And when his identical twin brother died, uh, Peter had this like change of life and decided to you know get get out of the stress of executive management, started doing yoga. And I think that was like for Peter's in he'd, he'd have to be late seventies now. I I was at his seventieth right. birthday, and that was. Well, I was in Kawanga. Melbourne, so that was nine or ten years ago. He must be close to eighty now, but he's been doing nice. yoga for like forty, forty-five years. I'm, wow. uh, I remember being at his house again, sort of eight or nine years ago, when he was seventy, seventy-one, and him doing uh, headstands and holding a headstand <laughs> and uh, really? in his room for a long time. So uh, yeah, he's wow. uh, he's in an incredible, incredible shape for a man of his age, and incredible, just. Trying to keep up yeah. with Peter. When, when I go down to Melbourne, oh, yeah. I catch up with him for a coffee and, you know, just he, he comes at me. And, and that's just one side of him. You also can get him talking about classical music and Wagner. Really? He's a huge Wagner fan. Really? Um, he's a huge fan of uh, the arts and, and uh, he's, you know, he's yeah. uh, one of his wives who is, is a very successful artist and painter. And uh, anyway, yeah. He's an incredible well, I, man, and he's involved. Sorry, he's involved in like half a dozen yeah. business projects, uh, ranging from technology, uh, innovation, technology to to political stuff to uh, activist and, and sustainability stuff. He's got always oh, got like ten business projects. He's you know chairman of and uh, just and, and he just like 
op- <laughs> he opens up his brain and I just try and drink yes. from it as much yes. as I can for an hour, man. You just hang on for the ride. Yeah. I do want to encourage, this would be the last thing I say. I do want to encourage everybody to go to YouTube and to find the interview you did with him about his book because he does take a couple of minutes and he says, here's what the average person can do to try to help, you know, sustain, to improve the environment, to, to be a better person, to like use the golden rule, that kind of stuff. So that was, I think it was, I don't know, like five or 10 minutes on YouTube or whatever, but I really enjoyed that. And I encourage everyone to go check that out. Uh, that That's a whole nother side of him where you can actually stop it and think about what he said for a minute and then press play and go. Well, also this podcast, I, I suggest that um, I want to go back and listen to it three or four times to uh, try and take it in a little <laughs> yeah. slowly. And I've known the guy yeah. for 15 years. All right. Uh, We're out. We're out. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.